Section 12 of All Afloat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. All Afloat, a Chronicle of Craft and Waterways by William Wood. Navies. This is not the place to discuss the naval side of craft and waterways in Canada. That requires a book of its own. But no study of Canada's maritime interests, however short, can close without a passing reference to her naval history. When the Kirks, with their tiny flotilla, took Quebec from Champlain's tiny garrison in 1629, the great guiding principles of sea power were as much at work as when Phipps led his American colonists to defeat against Frontenac in 1690, or as when Saunders and Wolfe led the admirably united forces of their enormous fleet to victory in 1759. In the same way, the decisive influence of sea power was triumphantly exerted by Iberville, the French naval hero of Canada, when, with his single ship, the Pelican, he defeated his three British opponents in a gallant fight, and so, for the time being, won the absolute command of Hudson's Bay in 1697. Again, it was naval rather than political and military forces that made American independence an accomplished fact. The opposition to the war in England counted for a good deal, and the French and American armies for still more but the really decisive anti-British force consisted of practically all the foreign navies in the world, some, like the French, Spanish, Dutch, and the Americans' own, taking an active part in the war, while the others were kept ready in reserve by the hostile armed neutrality of Russia, Sweden, Denmark, Prussia, and the smaller seacoast states of Germany. Once again, in the War of 1812, it was the two annihilating American naval victories on Lakes Erie and Champlain that turned the scale far enough back to offset the preponderant British military victories along the Canadian frontier and prevent the advance of that frontier beyond Detroit and into the state of Maine. There were very few people in 1910 who remembered that the Canadian Navy then begun was the third local force of its kind in Canada, though the first to be wholly paid and managed locally. From the launch of La Salle's Griffin in 1679 down to the Session in 1763, there was always some sort of French naval force built, manned, and managed in New France, though ultimately paid and directed from royal headquarters in Paris through the Minister of Marine and Colonies. It is significant that Marine and Colonies were made a single government department throughout the French regime. The change of rule did not entail the abolition of local forces, and from 1755, when a British flotilla of six little vessels was launched in Lake Ontario, down to and beyond the peace with the United States sixty years later, there was what soon became a provincial marine, which did good service against the Americans in 1776, when it was largely manned from the Royal Navy, and less good service in 1812, when it was a great deal more local in every way. Two vestiges of those days linger on to the present time, the first in the Canadian Militia Act, which provides for a naval as well as a military militia, permanent forces included, and the second in one of the Governor-General's official titles, Vice-Admiral of Canada. The Canadian privateers are even less known than the Provincial Marine, yet they did a good deal of preying on the enemy at different times, and they amounted together to a total which will probably surprise most students of Canadian history. At Halifax alone, 18 Nova Scotian privateers took out letters of marque against the French between 1756 and 1760, twelve more against the French between 1800 and 1805, and no less than forty-four against the Americans during the War of 1812. The century of peace which followed this war gradually came to be taken so much as a matter of course that Canadians forgot the lessons of the past and ignored the portents of the future. 
The very supremacy of a navy which protected them from nothing made them forget that without its guardian ships they could not have reached their Canadian nationality at all. Occasionally a threatened crisis would bring home to them some more intimate appreciation of British sea power. But for the rest they took the navy like the rising and the setting of the sun. The twentieth century opened on a rapidly changing naval world. British supremacy was no longer to go unchallenged, at least so far as preparation went. The German emperor followed up his pronouncement, Our future is on the sea, by vigorous action. For the first time in history, a German navy became a powerful force, fit to lead rather than to follow its Austrian and Italian allies. Also for the first time in history, the New World developed a sea power of first-class importance in the navy of the United States. And again, for the first time in history, the immemorial East produced a navy which annihilated the fleet of a European world power when Japan beat Russia at Tsushima in the centennial year of Nelson at Trafalgar. These portentous changes finally roused the overseas dominions of the British Empire to some sense of the value of that navy which had been protecting them so efficiently and so long at the mother country's sole expense. But the dawn of naval truth broke slowly, and following the sun went round from east to west. First it reached New Zealand, then Australia, then South Africa, and then, a long way last, Canada. Though Canada was the oldest, the largest, the most highly favoured in population and resources, the richest and the most expensively protected of them all. There was a searching of hearts and a gradual comprehension of first principles. Colonies which had been living the sheltered life for generations began to see that their immunity from attack was not due to any warlike virtue of their own, much less to any of their victories of peace, but simply to the fact that the British Navy represented the survival of the fittest in a previous struggle for existence. More than two centuries of repeated struggle, from the Armada in 1588 to Trafalgar in 1805, had given the British Empire a century of armed peace all around the seven seas, and its colonies a century's start ahead of every rival. But in 1905, the possible rivals were beginning to draw up once more, thanks to the age-long naval peace, and the launch of her first modern dreadnought showed that the mother country felt the need of putting forth her strength again to meet a world of new competitors. The critical question now was whether or not the overseas dominions would do their proper share. They had grown under free naval protection into strong commercial nations, with combined populations equal to nearly a third of that in the mother country, and combined revenues exceeding a third of hers. They had a free choice. Canada, for instance, might have declared herself independent, though she could not have made herself more free, and would certainly not have been able to maintain a position of complete independence in any serious crisis. Or she could have destroyed her individual Canadian characteristics by joining the United States, though in this case she would have been obliged to pay her share towards keeping up a navy which was far smaller than the British and much more costly in proportion. As another alternative, she could have said that her postal and customs preferences in favor of the mother country, taken in conjunction with what she paid for her militia, were enough. This would have put her far behind New Zealand and Australia, both of whom were doing much more in proportion to their wealth and population. There was a very natural curiosity to see what Canada would do, because she was much the senior of the other dominions, while in size, wealth, and population she practically equaled all three of them together. But whatever the expectations were, they were doomed to disappointment, for, while she was last in starting, she did not reach any decisive result at all. Australia, New Zealand, and even South Africa, so lately the scene of a devastating war, each gave money, while Canada gave none. New Zealand, with only one-seventh of Canada's population, gave a dreadnought, while Canada gave none. 
Australia had a battle-worthy squadron of her own, but Canada had nothing but a mere flotilla. The explanation of this strange discrepancy is to be found partly in geographical position. The geographical position of Canada differs widely from that of any other dominion. She lives beside the United States, a country with a population ten times greater than her own, a country, moreover, which holds the Monroe Doctrine as an article of faith in foreign policy. This famous doctrine simply means that the United States is determined to be the predominant power in the whole new world, and to prevent any outside power from gaining a foothold there. Consequently, the United States must defend, if necessary, any weaker nation in America whenever it is attacked by any stronger nation from outside. Of course, the United States would exert its power only on its own terms, to which any weaker friend would be obliged to submit. But so long as there was no immediate danger that the public could actually feel, the Monroe Doctrine provided a very handy argument for all those who preferred to do nothing. Another peculiarity of Canada's position is that she is far enough away from the great powers of Europe and from the black and yellow races of Africa and Asia to prevent her from realizing so quickly as the mother country the danger from the first, or so quickly as her sister dominions the danger from the second. For five successive years, from 1909 to 1913, the naval policy of Canada was the subject of debate in Parliament, press, and public meetings. In 1909, the building program for the German Navy brought on a debate in the Imperial Parliament which found an echo throughout the Empire. The Canadian Parliament then passed a loyal resolution with the consent of both parties. In 1910, these parties began to differ. The Liberals, who were then in power, started a distinctively Canadian Navy on a very small scale. In 1911, naval policy was, for the first time, one of the vexed questions in a general election. In 1912, the new Conservative government passed through the House of Commons an act authorizing an appropriation of $35 million for three first-class dreadnought battleships. This happened to be the exact sum paid by the imperial government for the fortification of Quebec in 1832, and considerably less than one-thirtieth part of what the imperial government had paid for the naval and military protection of Canada during the British regime. The Senate reversed the decision of the Commons in 1913, with the result that Canada's total naval contribution up to date consisted of five years' discussion and a little three-year-old navy, which had far less than half the fighting power of New Zealand's single dreadnought. The two great parliamentary parties agreed on the general proposition that Canada ought to do something for her own defence at sea, and that, within the British Empire, she enjoyed naval advantages which were unobtainable elsewhere but they differed radically on the vexed question of ways and means. The Conservatives said there was a naval emergency and proposed to give three dreadnoughts to the imperial government on certain conditions. The principal condition was that Canada could take them back at any time if she wished to use them for a navy of her own. The Liberals objected that there was no naval emergency and that it was wrong to let any force of any kind pass out of the control of the Canadian government. Nothing, of course, could be done without the consent of Parliament, and the consent of Parliament means the consent of both Houses, the Senate, and the Commons of Canada. There was a Conservative majority in the Commons and a Liberal majority in the Senate. The voting went by parties, and a complete deadlock ensued. End of Section 12 End of All Afloat, A Chronicle of Craft and Waterways by William Wood